Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel you're going to find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is going to be on there. You're going to find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts all that you can follow along with and the best part is that it's completely free they're also around 10 to 20 minutes long meaning if you're short of time you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout new workouts will go live on the channel every tuesday and thursday and they're going to be accompanied by an amazing backdrop which i'm sure you're all going to enjoy so if you want to find the channel just search elliot hasoon into youtube and you'll find it very easily and please subscribe it makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. In today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Goldie Utum Chandani. I'm going to preface this by making a really bold statement. This is one of my favorite conversations, hands down, that I've had on this podcast, truly. Goldie is an author, life and teen coach, a mother and a wife. Whilst working in her family business, Goldie started writing out of boredom, funnily enough. And with no academic experience in creative writing or literature, she just simply leaned into what she enjoyed doing. With a few gentle nudges in the right direction, she published her first book. This led her down a path of wanting to help improve the quality of life of those she encountered. She had a particular affinity towards working with the younger generation and has been making a tremendous impact ever since. In this episode, you can expect to learn how we can cultivate self-confidence in ourselves and our children, how to recognize and overcome having a victim mentality, along with the impact that technology and digital media is going to have on ourselves and our children in the future. Get yourself a pen and paper as you're going to want to take notes for this one. So without further ado, Gaudi Utumchandani. Gaudi, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good, Elliot. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. I'm excited to speak with you today. I think there's a lot of wisdom that you're going to impart on us today. So for those who don't know much about you or the work that you do, who are you and what is it that you do? So I'm Goldie Utam Chandani. You will all get a, a prize for saying my surname afterwards. Born and brought up in Spain. I live in Barcelona, though. I have been for the last 20 years. And I'm married with two children, two teenagers, 16 and 13. Why do I mention their ages? Because that's precisely the work that I do. I coach teenagers and families, amongst other people. I've been in this line of work for about six years now. And before that, I was doing marketing for the family company. So my transition was very abrupt. I didn't imagine myself doing this, as I say, six, seven years ago, probably because I didn't know about the profession. And I think like, like a lot of things in my life, things just happened very serendipitously. Is that the right word? Yeah. By, you know, fortuitous accident. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I love what I do because I connect with it. I've been, I, I was at boarding school. So that's a small point to mention. I was at a public boarding school for 
almost five, six years. And I recognized not then, but now in retrospect, how important it is to have someone who can just guide you through things and listen to you and accompany you through this whole process, which we call being a teenager. And uh, that's kind of in a nutshell what, what I do. I life coach, you know, kids from about 12 upwards. And then I also have very young adults in their 20s. It's great because you see a lot of change in younger people faster than in people who are post 40s. And I think that's that's what I really enjoy, the fast change, the receptiveness that they have and how they respond to wanting to become better people in their personal growth. Yeah, it must be really rewarding. And the fact that they haven't had too much of their life experience yet, which means that you are making quite a big impact on who they're ultimately going to be, right? Exactly. I think they, they just need like an anchor to hold on to. And, you know, coaching is not about telling you what to do. It's about asking the right questions. So I do that. And I think a lot of it works because they're curious. And, you know, neuroplasticity tells us that if you can be curious and be adapting to change, which they are. They're creative. A lot of people don't realize this, but your most creative years are essentially between 13 and 23. So if you can have that going in your favor, then you're, you can you know run, run miles ahead of, of most people. And I think the most important uh, caveat here is that they are our future. So I'd rather be looked after, you know, a teenager who has their head on their shoulders in my old age than, uh, yeah. than someone who's not quite sure where they're headed. That's a really valuable point to make. And I actually have a question on that later today. And you're absolutely right because of, to broadly speak, a parent's job is to parents. School is very much a system in which people need to follow one certain course. And then you might have brothers and sisters, you might not. Friends isn't exactly the place in which you're going to confide in people or maybe explore those things, or you might even get put down for exploring some of those things. So to have the outlet in the type of work that you do, I think could be valuable for many, many people. Are they initially quite receptive, to, especially the children you work with? Do they open up quite quickly or are they some more resistant than others? There is a resistance because they come often from backgrounds where there's been some trouble. So innately, they're a little bit closed. But the real reason for that uh, is because they haven't had the opportunity to be honest and you know find a safe space to be listened to. Of course, you can you can hear a person, but are you really listening? And it's this concept of non-judgmental safe space that they discover with me. And yeah, initially, I think the first, even not one, but even two sessions is literally about getting to know them and becoming more so their friend. And uh, at the same time, letting them know that whatever they talk about here is completely confidential. So they may have concerns that, you know, I may share with their parents. If it's something that doesn't need to be spoken to with the parents, which is pre-agreed, then we're good to go. Mm. So six years ago, you are embarking on this coaching journey. What did the couple of years in the lead up look like in terms of your thought process around diving into this world? Did you have uncertainty about it? Because I'm thinking about the status of life coaching, because I know that, for example, personal training and online coaching 
online coaching, for example, has only really been very well known for the past few years or so since the pandemic, more so than anything, maybe a little bit before that. And then personal training slowly became a household name, maybe around that sort of time as well. So life coaching probably wouldn't have been on most people's agenda around six years ago, but probably wouldn't have been on mine, if I'm honest. So what made you think about diving into that journey and also the uncertainty that potentially it could have created? Well, that's a really good question because just like you said, it was unknown even to me. I mm-hmm. I had heard of a coach, but it was strictly in the sports sense. I wasn't even familiar with somebody who can you know sit and talk to you Uh, without it being a psychologist or a therapist. So what really happened was actually, it's it's a funny story. I decided to embark further into what I enjoyed a lot, which was writing. It, It became a hobby for me for a long time. And, you know, I, I would sit in my office and although I had work to do, I was bored. And so what I did was I started a blog at the time. I don't know if you remember Blogspot was a big deal in the sort of late 2008, 2009. And I I just started writing and nobody knew about this. I just decided to write for myself until one day that my, my brother and my husband, I shared with them what, what I was writing and they, they enjoyed what I was writing. And my brother specifically said, I think you should make this public. So I did. And then I would publish my articles and my poetry as well. And it was just on Facebook, very casual. And then as a consequence of that, one fine day, again, my brother, he said, hey, why don't you write a book? And I thought that was the most craziest idea he'd come up with because I don't even come from like an English major or, you know, a degree which involves creative writing. This was purely based on passion and hobby. But he pushed me and I guess encouraged me. And then so did Morley, my husband. And I just decided to research into publishers and with no expectations. I think that's one of the most important lessons that I give teenagers as well. Just do what you like, but don't have any expectations. See where it takes you. So mm-hmm. I f- fell into this path on my own without even realizing that I had a connection with people through my writing. And then the book did come out, which was in 2013. That was my first book. And then as a consequence of that, I recognized that I want to take this one step further and connect with people on one-to-one, but I need some knowledge in that. I can't just openly, you know, let people into my life and say, Hey, come, let me talk to you. I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what the name for that was. And Yet again, my brother had a conversation with me on the phone and he said, you know, there are people who do this for a living. I said, do what? He said, they they coach people. I said, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. So I did some research and I found a school in Barcelona that offered this type of training. And I, I did the degree. Within a year, I was certified. And sorry, before that, I forgot to mention the book that I had in hand, I realized I, ne- I needed to do something with it. It wasn't just written for people to read. It had to give more than just reading. So mm. I went on uh, on a mission to knock on doors at schools in Barcelona to let me come and talk to their pupils b- based on this book I'd written. And it, it was a crazy, again, a very wild idea But I I showed up at the Department of Education here in Barcelona, and I just, I wanted to speak to the the head of the foreign languages, specifically the English department, and show them this book and tell them I have no qualifications. I just have this book. I'm, I'm a business major, but I feel that I can 
share something from this book for the kids. And he gave me an opportunity. And I think that when people really just take you on like for a chance, those are the best opportunities in life. And mm-hmm. he, he had, I don't know, I think he had a little bit of faith in me. He said, we'll do a pilot trial. I even said, I don't want you to pay me. Let me just do this because I really want to try if it works. And he said, okay, let's do a pilot trial. He was excited. And I did about four schools locally and I gave a conference. I was already in pu- into public speaking because I'd done that as a teenager. I'd, I'd done all these public speaking festivals. So that was a skill that I already had acquired from my younger years. And then the rest is history. I It's now it's been seven years. I collaborate actively with the whole of Catalonia. Mm-hmm. And I also obviously coach. So I have sort of two roles. I do one-on-one coaching and then I do workshops and conferences for companies as well as schools, mostly public schools. You knew which direction you wanted to go, but maybe not which route to take and didn't know which doors would open, but you just started traveling down that route. And then all of a sudden you started knocking on those doors and they started opening. I think there's a lot to take away from that. And also a lot to take away from your support system in terms of Merle and your brother keeping on pushing, especially your brother. Like, you know, there are maybe some brother and sister dynamics where they might just keep to themselves or they might want to progress as the sibling, whereas he was pushing you in those directions, which I think is quite awesome. Yeah, I must say this is something, again, as a, as a consequence of what I learned in coaching, there is a concept called appreciative inquiry coaching, which is another certification I did much later. One of the concepts that you, you learn in that type of coaching is how is your relational circuit affecting your decisions? Mm. So what this means is which are the people in your life that have a high impact on you? And if they're having a positive high impact on you, then you have to be very conscious of this. And when we did the learning, I, I, you know, organically, I realized, oh my God, these are the two guys who have actively had a role in my transformation. So I have to keep them close because I think there's a lot of benefit to find in your systemic internal circuit. 100%. Yeah. We find that in health and fitness coaching as well. I usually say that you're environment, the people around you will make you or break you. And it sounds quite dramatic, but it tends to be the case. If you've got a supportive partner and family around you, or even just some friends, it can be astronomical, the difference between that and having someone who's just giving you those eyes when you're doing something different to the rest of the family, or even calling you out for doing something different to the rest of your family. And you have a fantastic concept on this called the fist of five, right? Can you explain that for us? So because of what I discovered in Appreciative Inquiry, I realized how important people are in our lives. And I did an experiment with my own self. And for about a month, I decided to just write down every week, who are the people that have had the most impact on me that week, whether it's, you know, for the good or for the bad, I had to see both variables. So I discovered that there were sort of like the top three, four that kept coming up. And then there were some that were also coming up in not such a good sense, in a negative way. They were either weighing me down or there was some form of repellent energy that was, you know, I was facing. So I decided that it's important to reflect on this point because clearly it's making or breaking my week, like you said. And so I came up with this tool. It's a coaching tool, which is called the Fist of Five. And what it basically means is if you take your hand and count on your five fingers, five people that have an impact on you in in a good sense, then those are the five that you can refer to when you have to make an important decision 
depending on the nature of the decision, you will go to one, two, three, four, or five. And each person has a different representation for you. So one can be, the one I love the most is the person who makes you laugh. And and this is a person, although their role is fairly insignificant on a day-to-day, but we do need humor in our lives. Mm -hmm. So there will always be that one person. And it may not even be someone you're living with. It could just be, you know, a friend or um, a colleague, a a co-worker, but you must recognize who that person is. Then you have the wise one who will probably be the one that will call you out on stuff and very candidly and have no filters and just tell you, what are you doing? That's wrong. And then you have your listener, the person who unconditionally listens and doesn't judge. So very Mm -hmm. contrary to the previous one who doesn't call you out, but will be there to listen to you and so on. And then there's two more. And so this is the the first of five tool that that I have. And I, I use it again, especially with teenagers, because the beauty is it keeps changing. And as you grow, your fist of five will change. And you you have to recognize this because once you notice that someone is weighing you down, then you don't want to cut that finger off. You want to just replace <laughs> the, the person <laughs> with somebody else maybe, or even just not have anyone there for a while, which is also healthy because that's when you're just, again, on a growth journey and discovering yourself, you know, until you find that other index finger or the thumb or whatever it is. (laughs) I really like that analogy. And I think it's fantastic to really break it down. The first step is obviously reflecting on those people in your life, first and foremost. And like you said, identifying the people who don't have a particularly good place. And it's not to say that you have to exclude them from your life. You just need to be mindful of if they are on your five without you even realizing it. And like you said, you want to be filling it with what you say, someone who's why is someone who's humorous and someone who's a listener? And obviously there's two more to that. But yeah, just making sure that you're not filling up your hand with the negative person in between and maybe the energy draining one as well. If, because of even if you have a positive three, a negative two or even a negative one could make a really big impact on that. So I think that's a, a really fantastic reflection. And like you said, you don't want to cut off those fingers either because you want to broaden that scope as much as possible. And I think a lot of people do that. They're like, okay, I'm just going to cut out everyone. I'm just going to rely on this single person. But what I've recognized in friendships and relationships is that, you know, a lot of us, we have the inclination to rely on one person, especially our, potentially our romantic partner for absolutely everything. And that places a massive burden on them because no one person can be your everything. So I think then, like you said, distributing that, recognizing that. And one final point I had is when I had a conversation with David Gandelman, who was a spiritual teacher, he mentioned like a boardroom table and he was thinking about who's sat around him, which different figures and it's very similar concept, you know, who's bringing that energy and that support to your life. And then something on your side that we could also recognize is like, whose board are you on? You know, whose five are you on? And I think it's really important to recognize that, okay, if I don't have that many people on my hand or they're more negative than I'd like them to be, well, where am I showing up on other people's as well? And I think that's a good question to maybe inquire with as well. Absolutely. I think it's reciprocal. As Mm. much as people want to believe many times, oh, I'm just going to give and not expect. It doesn't work like that. You have to give because there has to be a balance. And that's funny that what you've just said it's made me realize one of the most, the biggest misconceptions that people have, and this must be corrected at a young age, is gratitude is not just about giving. It's about giving and receiving and respecting what you receive. Because what you give is essentially a burden that the other person gets from you. And in time, if you don't get back from them, even if it's in small incremental bits and pieces, that's going to fracture the relationship. 
ultimately. There's a, there's a very cute story, if I can share, that I, I always uh, use for this example. There was, uh, there's two people who are neighbors and they have a, a terrace between them. And one of them is a well-to-do and you know wealthy family and the the neighbor in front they're not doing so well financially but they're friends you know they're neighbors so one day the wealthy neighbor she asks the other one for some salt and the other one very happily passes over the salt through the terrace it, it I mean you have to visualize it you know the son of the wealthy woman says but mom why are you asking for salt when you know we have enough in the kitchen and uh, the mom says i know i have salt I have plenty. In fact, I can give to our neighbor, but I must ask her for something small every week so that she doesn't feel burdened by all that we do for her and let her feel like she's able to give back. And and that I, li- I really like that. That's the, the, mm. a nice sort of value you can put into your children as well to say, well, yes, we know you, all, you, you have everything, but don't forget that the other person has something to give to you as well, even if it's little and take it, don't refuse it. Yeah, that's a really fantastic lesson. And I think it just has to come down to opening your mind up to think that everyone who you ever interact with can offer something, even if it's just their unique life experience or just a warm embrace or something along those lines. It could be anything irrespective of that situation. Mm -hmm. And also, it's funny that you say that because a lot of the time, most of us will have hesitations for asking for help. Whereas when we are like, for example, if I'm asked for help, I'm like, oh yeah, I'd love to help you out. And it feels good to give. And most people do feel great, especially like you said, if it is someone who's maybe in a bit of a more challenging circumstance and they don't feel that they have the opportunity to give and they feel like they're taking all the time, just, yeah, it's that rule of reciprocity, right? It almost is innate within us that we want to return the favor that someone gives us. So yeah, that's a really uh, nice analogy. I like that. Right, let's uh, transition a little bit. And actually, before we do, you made a distinction of understanding that there was therapy and a psychological setting of one-to-one interactions. But then obviously coaching is a different thing. Can you just differentiate the two of those for us? Yeah, sure. In coaching, what we definitely don't do is give advice. What we also don't do is prescribe any medication. We are not uh, qualified to treat specific ailments like addictions or even a more more specific issues like ADHD. Coaching is more about assessing the person in the moment when they are just struggling to maybe go that step further in their personal growth. So topics such as relationships and the communication between them. I'm talking strictly here in life coaching. There are obviously business coaching topics as well. Or having a a difficult time seeing your own self-worth. So this is where the whole self-esteem part comes in. Confidence building and so on. These are the type of topics that we cover in coaching. And, And they may seem a little bit sort of a bit airy maybe to the average person, but they have a very remarkable impact on your day-to-day if you are not feeling so good about yourself or you're not uh, confident to move forward. If they're not seen in time, then you can lead to further problems such as depression, high levels of anxiety. And that's when we go to clinical psychology. And obviously, if that is something that I observe, then I will refer them to a colleague that I, I mean, we have a network that the beauty of this world is that you have always got a good colleague who will take over your case or pass on a person who doesn't need psychology. And they may just need a couple of sessions of coaching and they're good to go. So I feel it's like that bridge that you can walk on 
before it gets too late. And then you definitely need some more, you know, deeper assistance where there is a case of mild depression or, or, or some other types of, um, you know, chronic illnesses to do with mental health. So that's predominantly the difference between uh, coaching and, and therapy or psychotherapy um, and psychology. Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like with therapy and yeah, seeing a psychologist, you would be almost going back in order to dig to understand what's coming up in your day to day. Whereas life coaching sounds like you're traveling forward. Always. This is the, the biggest distinction we have to make in session one. In fact, we ask the clients to set a goal for themselves. And that goal has to, one of the requisites that we have is to set it in positive and moving forward. So it can be a simple sentence, they say, but it has to be in positive because the, the idea of coaching is you go forward. Yes, we do sometimes look back and see what has happened. But most of the time, there's a lot of positive psychology, in fact, that we use in order to push them forward in, in a coaching sense. Yeah, I can imagine that that's actually what a lot of people need and could benefit more from that than digging up their past and potentially going into territory that they might not be prepared or even wanting to go to. So I think, like yeah. you said, it's an easier thing to get people into. If someone says, hey, do you want to go look and dig into your past? Or do you want to look at this positive, bright future? I know there's value to both. And I, I'm, I partake in therapy regularly, but I can imagine that, that look towards the future in an optimistic and bright sense is far more appealing to most people than digging up previous trauma. <laughs> Of course. And there's ways of being able to identify old skeletons that are not working out for you without going to them. And it's simple uh, things like doing an exercise on what are your nuclear beliefs. And this essentially touches a little bit of what you believe in, but that's holding you back. And those yes. beliefs, those core beliefs, they come from old habits, upbringing, all the layers that you've accumulated over the years, the people who've impacted you, your parents especially. And is that still working out for you? No, it's not. Okay, so let's transform your core beliefs. And that is the invitation to move forward and make a change. Mm, no, I completely agree. And I think that, like you said, it's just a positive reframe. And there's no need to go visit that reason why those core beliefs exist is just about acknowledging that they're there and asking yourself, like you mentioned, do they serve me or not? And then changing the course based on that. So you have a first couple of lines on your website. There are two questions. So I want to ask you them, which is how would your life change if you could tap into your full potential? And what if you could have anything you want for your life? So how do we tap into our full potential and have anything that we want in life? I think <laughs> tapping into your full potential essentially is has to do with your experiences and we've all got what what we call this positive nucleus and if you want to imagine it's like a little glowing ball that sits just in the pit of your stomach and this is also something that you know we work with from appreciative inquiry and the way that you can tap into that is by activating it so it's a bit like okay we have to charge the battery now so let's work towards that and the way that i try to discover this with people is by asking them uh, these set of interview questions. So for example, when was the last time that you felt truly alive? And it requires you to think, think back, because you do have experiences that have been fantastic, but we tend to forget why, because the human brain is engineered to focus on what didn't go well, rather than what did go well. <laughs> Okay. And then as and when we continue with th this questioning uh, process, this interview, you start to generate a change in language in the person. So in your client, and then as a coach, you have to write down those 
key words that they keep using, the positive ones. And then what you have to do is completely change the narrative, but using their words. So it's as if you're telling them their own story with their own words, but as an author. And that is when you they start to re-believe in this uh, possibility of tapping into their true, you know, highest potential. And that's when they'll start to discover what is it that worked, which can continue to work for me here moving forward. Who were those people that impacted me? Where was I sitting? What was I wearing? What was I eating? All these very subconscious things that you could don't even realize sometimes. Were you doing any exercise? Yes, I was. I used to play football. Oh man, that was amazing. Oh really? When was the last time you did that? Gosh, I don't remember. Would you like to go back to doing that? You know, these are the type of things you have to remind people mm. because everyone has a story and really good ones, actually. But if you don't have a starting point, you can't move forward. And then obviously, as you grow older, you acquire, you acquire experience, you acquire more skills. You can add on to that. And that's when you're really allowing your full potential to operate in the real world. Yeah, that, that's amazing. It's a fantastic place to dig into. And a lot of us will just focus on the day to day. And like you said, not what's not going so well, but if you actually give someone the opportunity to look back, most of them can find that. I do find people and you may find this as well, will tend to fall into a little bit of a victim mentality, which I'm sure you'll find a lot as well. How do you start pulling people out of that? And firstly, getting them to recognize that they are almost allowing life to happen to them versus making life happen for themselves. So this is a good question as well. And essentially, I found this to be probably the hardest moment in my certification to tell people off in, in an assertive way. <laughs> this is something that I struggled with myself as a person when I was being coached, not being the victim, but just being too nice to people. And that is something that you have to discover about yourself as well as a coach, that you can't always just be nice. You can be polite, but you have to be honest. And there's a difference between being nice and being honest. So that is the yeah. distinction that I use with my clients. And very openly, I give them the distinction of, do you want to be a victim or do you want to be a responsible person? It stops them in their tracks, obviously, because they don't see what you're, what you're saying to them. And you have to back that up. Again, once again, as a coach, you can't just give advice based on what your opinion is or what you're, what you're observing or even your own past core beliefs, which make you, which condition you to label somebody. Mm. You have to play with the data that you have in front of you. So if, for example, I set a 14 year old some homework from their first session to their next and they come back and they give me five excuses as to why they didn't get that homework done, my question to them would be, so what, what, you'd, what were you doing instead? And so they tell me what they were doing. And I go, okay, so I can observe that your priority lies in doing this. Is that where you would like to go towards? And they'll be like, no, I did want to do what you told me, but I just didn't have the time. And I go, oh, but it's okay. You obviously had the time and I can understand that your priority was here. So perhaps you want to focus on this area. So politely, I put the child in his place, you know, without telling him off, just reminding him that actually your priority is somewhere else and you can decide what to do with that. So then the word victim doesn't come in. It's just about taking responsibility because the minute you call them a victim, they get, they hold back and, and they get defensive and that's not going in the right, in the right direction. You're, you're moving backwards rather than moving forwards. 
that's it. And, you know, they might turn around just like, oh, another adult that's labeling me, another adult that's not actually hearing what I'm saying. Exactly. But if you literally, like you said, say their words back to them, yeah. there's no place for them to hide and they have to start justifying that. And I just try to relate this back to a classroom sense and you bring in your homework and you haven't done it and you make up that excuse and, you know, your teacher either punishes you or kind of just doesn't acknowledge what you're saying. So I love that you, you've given them the space to actually say okay, this is what I would have liked to do, but I just didn't. And this is where, and then you get them to start thinking about how their time is something that they allocate and value of that as well. So I think that's super, super valuable. And you know, many times, Elliot, the problem is not that they don't want to do what you tell them, or they don't want to get done what they know is right for them. There may be something missing that they need before getting the task done. So a very common question I ask is, okay, what would you need to be able to complete this next week? Is there something that Mm. was missing for you? And that gets them thinking. And quite often, it's as simple as I need to say no to somebody because I have to put priority on this task. And then you have a huge core belief being untapped into the ability to say no. And that, as you know, and many of us know, is, is something even as adults we struggle with. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because even more so if you don't even recognize it as a child, we compound and compound and compound as adults and it's harder to change. So yeah. giving a child an ability to say no and also allowing them to recognize that they have that choice as well. Because if a lot of us, when we're younger, we just rely on our parents for that direction, that guidance. And it's almost like until you're 16 or 18, you live by the house's rules. You don't, you don't have your own rules. And whereas, and then that just carries on until you go into your adult life. Whereas if someone says, yeah, you do have the opportunity. And I don't know what it's like over in Spain, but I know in the UK, it's not particularly favorable for a kid to step out and say, I'm prioritizing this right now for the sake of being better. Like I remember when I first started going to a gym as a child, I didn't tell anyone. I just literally stopped seeing my friends at the school gates and I just went straight there because I didn't want to have to tell people or justify or anything like that. And you usually get pulled down. It's very much a case of tall poppy syndrome almost. It's almost like you're trying to do something better for yourself. And they're like, hey, you're not part of us. You know, so it's good that you're empowering people to recognize that they have that choice and, you know, the positive outcomes of making that choice as well. Yeah, it, it's it's very similar here, Elliot. I think it doesn't even make a difference on the country you live in. I think it depends on the parenting that you have as well. And and this sure. is obviously the, the flip side of the coin. If I have a teenager coming to me to enhance their personal growth, that's only going to escalate in a good or a bad direction if they have parents who are supporting this uh, type of work for them. So a a very important thing that I do is um, after having the first or second session, I have a follow-up call with the mum usually the mum. Dads do do come in, but but it's more the mum because she's kind of the, you I know. I can imagine. Yeah. And I, I'm very upfront and honest with the mums. If, if there is something I'm observing that can be rectified or they could be supported further by the intervention and the help of the parent. Because like we said earlier, the relational circuit is absolutely fundamental. So for a teenager, their relational circuit consists of two parents and probably the siblings that they live with, you know, or if they're an only child, then it's the parents only, and maybe some other caretakers that play a big role in their lives. So the the support and the push is is very important. And the ability to say no to your own parents is the first thing you should know. So, you know, a, a, a way that I teach them this is every time you say a yes to someone, 
you're saying a no to yourself. That usually does the trick. No, I think so. I think it's just about giving them that awareness and again, that permission, right? We just Mm. don't have that permission when you're a younger child and you just go by what you're said. And, you know, there's very hard and fast rules when you're younger, which is necessary because if you don't have the life experience to make the best decisions at times. But I think that there does need to be a little bit more room for openness and a little bit more room for exploration, which I will ask you a little bit later as well on on the front of parenting, because I think that's going to be a fascinating topic and how we combine the two. With that being said, that probably starts to open up a child's confidence. And it does surprise me there's none of this type of work done in schools at the moment, apart from obviously essentially the workshops you're doing, the one-to-one work. How does like a child and an adult start building confidence and having like a good sense of self-worth? Because I find that so many people I come across, if you start to understand human nature a little bit, you start to dig below the surface a little bit more. Most people are lacking in the area of really having self-confidence. It's either bravado or a bit of a mask. It's never deep within. So how do people start cultivating that, whether they are younger or older? Obviously, as a younger person, this is like your moment to, to play with the, pla- the the plasticine that you have in front of you. And uh, you know, I once again refer to who are the role models that they're looking up to. Now, those role models need to be giving that child the space to explore, first of all, what they're good at. So it could be as simple as this child loves playing football. He may not be good at it, but he enjoys it. So let them, let them play more of what they enjoy. It doesn't matter if they're going to be part of the team or they're going to score uh, goals. It's just a fact that they're enjoying something. And when you enjoy something, your confidence goes up because you know that this is something that I am feeling happy. It's, it's, it's a very emotional change, correct? So the, the, the most basic thing is to identify what is your child good at? And as parents, what happens is we tend to think that this is going to be good for them, or this is going to be good for them. But that's, that's your equation. That's how you have imagined your child to be. But don't forget that all you did was give birth to this child, but they're a whole entity in themselves. And you have to see and and, and kind of a bit, but like observe them as well. You may influence yeah. them, but you have to observe what are their fortes. And that is where confidence starts to build. And then of course, recognition. This is something that again, at least I've noticed in in culturally, this is now We don't recognize our children every day for things they do, but we definitely tell them off for the things that they do wrong. And and that is something that needs to change. So a lot of it has to do with how are you giving constructive criticism to your child? What is your language? What is your narrative? And and a good example that I, I use is if they come home after a test and they have failed the test, what's the parent going to tell the child? Hey, why did you fail the test? It's such an intuitive thing to say. Yeah. But instead of saying that, you can say something like, do you have the test with you? Shall we go through it? And then look at the answers and say, hey, look, you got two right. How did you manage to get those two right? Well done. And did you find that you struggled with the others? What happened there? Can you identify what you can do to make sure that you do a little bit better next time? There's no telling off. There's no identifying that you failed. That word doesn't even come into the narrative. On the contrary, you're working from the good towards the better. 100%. That's beautiful. And that's confidence. That's that's confidence. You have to believe in your children. Absolutely. And you have to 
taking a step back, the initial thought that came into my mind is when a parent probably doesn't give recognition to their child is because they didn't get recognition from their parents. And I heard a phrase which always sticks with me, which is, we were broken by a generation that never learned how to heal. And I was just like, oh, every time it gives me like goosebumps. But it's so fascinating because of it then becomes a generational cycle. So let's say you're in the parents' shoes now and maybe you didn't even recognize that you didn't get that acknowledgement or maybe you did. How do you start cultivating that potentially as a parent or even an adult? I, I think that's that's definitely something to, to bear in mind. I personally come from that culture as well, given the bravo for when I did well, but when I didn't do so well, I was uh, called out on it even more. So I think as an adult, this is work that you have to do for yourself. And, 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 and one way of, of doing this is through self-compassion. So that's, again, another technique that we, we apply with adults, especially. If you are going to be hard on yourself and say to yourself, I didn't get the work done and I'm terrible. I, I didn't, you know, you, you're, you're sort of hammering yourself for something that you didn't get done. Now ask yourself, if your friend tells you the same thing, you know, I've had a really bad day and I just feel like I didn't get anything done. I'm not a very productive person. How would you speak to your friend in turn? You would probably sit with them and bring them up rather than also partake in the same negative narrative and tell them off. Um, So you have to learn how to be compassionate with yourself. And being compassionate with yourself does not mean getting the green green card to make mistakes and sit and do nothing and don't fix the problem. It just means I didn't get it done, but there's a better way to get it done next time than to be hard on myself. I recognize I didn't get it done. What can I do differently next time so that I do it better? And that's essentially the example that I gave you with the test of the child. You're not telling them off because they already feel terrible anyway. I mean, they probably, mm. right. They've already received the, the looks in class or even I'm not saying the teacher necessarily may have made them feel that way, but it intuitively comes because there are other kids there to compare to. So you don't want to be that next person at home also telling them the same thing. Yeah. And so. yeah, and and there's a, there's a there's a lovely exercise that we do at home as well and I tell a lot of families to do it at home which is the panel of talents it's called. So what you do is if there's four people in the family, you create a chart on a big piece of cardboard and you write in four columns the names of each person. And then you stick that like on your fridge or somewhere which is visible to the whole family. And for a whole week, the person who observes that someone else has done something good that day or something that's been helpful for them, it could be anything like you made me a cup of tea. Thank you. That you have to write it in the column of that person. And likewise, the children do the same for all the other three, and then the parent does it for the child and and obviously their partner. And so at the end of the week, everybody gets a little bit of self-recognition by just visually looking at that panel. And this is something that also helps build confidence within the family, because for all we know, it could be the parents who are lacking the confidence, and that's rippling into the confidence of the child and bringing them down. Yeah, I can 100% imagine that being the case. And that comes back to what we were saying before. And I think that the parents will probably have to recognize the role that they play in acknowledging the child. And as you mentioned, and I think this is a good point is that not only do they have, you know, their classmates around them getting good grades is that 
there's a, an understanding and a societal expectation for you to do relatively well in school. It's like people quite often ask me or they'll come to me when I'm coaching them. They'll be like, don't tell me off. I've done this, this, or this and wrong. I'm like, why would I tell you off? You've already given yourself a hard time before emailing me. You had to reflect on the fact you did something didn't align with your goals in the email. You've already given yourself a hard enough time. What's the point of me coming in and just, you know, giving you more <laughs> negative reinforcement that you've already been probably far worse to yourself. And so I think, like you said, recognizing that they've already gone through enough of that and they might play off of, I don't care, but that's probably more the sense because of they don't want to feel the hurt of the thing that they didn't get wrong. It's not because they don't actually care. So I think, like you said, using that friendship example, which I think is probably the most powerful example I've ever come across because of it's not innate for some reason, especially with myself is to just automatically be kind. If you did ask me, it was so much easier to be nicer to others, to give more constructive and compassionate advice to others. So I think that's a really valuable takeaway. And obviously you see a lot of children inside your work, outside of your work and within your family unit as well. What do you feel like the overall state of play is right now for children's mental health? And what do you envision for the future of the generations that's coming next? Do you see it in a quite an optimistic light. I imagine you have a proclivity towards seeing an optimistic light, but you probably also see the reality. So what do you feel for the next generation? I think the, the most pr pressing need of the hour for me personally, as, as the way I see it, is the presence of digitalization for, for the children and the way that they see. We, I at least, came come from a generation where I had no access to digital media. I did not rely on social media didn't even exist. And there was absolutely no room for any comparison to arise on, on an online platform. The problems have been, remained the same over the years. I too wanted uh, validation. I too seek acceptance in my peer groups. I feared rejection those were the, the the underlying sort of you know hot topics of all our like growing years. I mean, you've probably resonated with that too, and mm -hmm. and the kids today have the same issues. The, the issues remain the same. The difference is two things for me personally. Number one, the access to digital media and the exposure to social media is not making them more social, but it's making them more isolated because they are mm. spending more time with themselves alone, but watching what's going on online. For a person who has low confidence, this is the perfect antidote because you can hide yourself in the room and have access to this wonderful world of digital media and think that you are a part of that world. But that's not the truth. It's all fictional. It's like a video game. So my biggest concern right now is not actually that they don't get enough time to, you know, get the good grades or the education system is maybe going down the toilet. My concern is how much time do they have with other human beings on a day to day and have those social connections? And with the advent of the metaverse, I, I'm sure you know <laughs> that is I'm very opinionated I'm, on this. <laughs> I'm so freaked out by this. I, I mean, I have to say this, you know, it's like we already have the internet. Do you really want to be inside the internet mm -hmm. and create, you know, a figure for yourself that's not real and be a part of a community that is essentially where you can make up the rules? How scary is that? Where you can do as you want 
without any guidance. So this is my concern. Now, as far as on in a positive light, which which I do have my other argument, is we must give them that conscious knowledge on what are the effects of this. You you can't escape it. We we cannot escape social media. We cannot escape being online. The world is working like that. And now especially because of the pandemic, we have more reasons to be online and and it it's it's for the better i think in many ways but we must recognize what are those good things versus the bad things and how can we use these tools these wonderful tools in a productive and an efficient way that can make us better people and i think there's very little education on that because very quickly are you given the phone and very quickly do you have access to you know going on tiktok going on instagram or, or any of these everything everything but nobody's sitting there giving you a tutorial on hey darling this is how it works but remember this could happen as well and that is something that i personally want to prepare i mean this is something i've i've had at the back of my mind create a program of some kind where we can give them some tips and tools on how to use them efficiently to their benefit and get the best out of it rather than let them go down the other direction where they're not benefiting from it. I couldn't agree more. I believe we really need a strategy as children and adults to use our devices now. And I think those without a strategy are going to get sucked into this world in a very, very negative way. It's not enough in which we're past the point in which we can just neglect that these things even exist. You are absolutely the minority if you're not carrying around a device with you. It would just be unusual and you would feel out of place in the modern world that we live in. So, and you'd actually, even if you were a parent and you was like, nope, my child isn't going to have a phone, you're actually putting them at a disadvantage because it's highly likely what they're going to do in the future is going to involve some type of technology and device use. But a strategy, like you said, is needed. Someone to guide you through how to use this when you get started is absolutely essential. And I was thinking about this metaverse thing, and I actually want to find someone who's in favor of it and who has some consciousness towards health to have a, a genuine debate about it. Because I'm intrigued to see what the other side of it is. Because I personally, I could probably dig for some positives, but I'm actually very, very apprehensive about it all due to the fact that I was thinking, okay, what's the good things about technology? Why is it so fantastic in the way. And I think part of the good of it is the fact that you can put it down. Part of the fact of it is that you can close your laptop lid, you can lock your phone, you can put it out of sight, and you can facilitate meeting in person. But once you can't put it down and you're in it, I think that there's just too many variables then out of your control. I just can't see that being a positive. And even coming back to that sense is that when I was a child, I think I just about started to get a phone when I was reaching late school ages. But if you if you were bullied and you went home, the bullies didn't exist at home. But if you were bullied in school and you have your devices now, that bully's got access to you at any given point. And also the fear of potentially some of the things you've done as a child now getting videoed and put online is horrifying, especially for, for, a, for a parent or a child. So I'm very concerned in a way about the impact and the magnitude it's going to have. And yeah, I'm just trying to think of a way in which it can be better, even just from a, about going off on the tangent, because I could speak about this for 30 minutes, but um, even just to think about like a, a Zoom office, for example, right? What's the fantastic thing about finishing a Zoom course that 
when I close my laptop lid, you're not here. And right now I'm in the comfort of my own home. I can be sat in my underwear. I'm not just to preface, but you could be. <laughs> but what happened if your your boss is now a hologram in your living room? Yeah. Do you really want that? That's where we're going. And you know, there's people talking about how we can almost like create the sensation of touch. And you're like, do you really want to be shaking your boss's hand at your breakfast table? Like there would be no boundaries here. Yeah. And also all the things that like step into the metaverse, you can do this, this, and this, and like, well, you can do this, this, and this in real life. And it's significantly a better experience. Yes, you have access to people around the world and that's fantastic. But, you know, I'm kind of glad that people are sat in that little glass screen in that box for the most part. And if they are really, truly important to you and yes, logistical concerns and pandemics will happen, but at some point you're making an effort to go see them. So that's my rant done with. <laughs> You're saying all the right things, Elliot. And I think essentially we also must not discard the science, correct? That there is the the whole idea of it being so instant and at access at the, at the touch of a fingertip disables us from processing. You know, the, as, mm. as, as Viktor Frankl said, you must allow the space between stimulus and response. Otherwise, you are going to react. And when you react, you explode. Exactly. So that's just a, a simple scientific concept that is going to be just eradicated with the, the coming of, of metaverse because you have no room for space to think, process, and then respond. And if you recognize that your life isn't going in a particular trajectory that you want to, yes, you can do a little bit of escapism on social media now, but to a point you get to a stage where you recognize that there's something not right here however if you live in that universe in the future and okay the real world sucks for me so i'm just going to live in here what's it going to do to those people who if they had that space to think and sit with their inner demons and take a painful self-reflection then what can i do with that whereas you don't have the opportunity to do that if that's a whole new world that's available to you so coming on that actually brings me on to a, a question that I have for you. Is it possible as a parent not to break your child, both mentally and sometimes physically? <laughs> I think they need to they need to fall and break in order to rise again. This is the beauty of the human human being, right? We are engineered to to be resilient. So no, I think I think you must allow them to break and you must allow them to fall and and, and be victims of their own decisions. Because if you don't, then what are you doing? The opposite. You're protecting them the whole time. If you have a, a baby who's learning to walk, you have two types of parenting. You have helicopter parenting, which is, here, let me help you walk. And you literally hold their hand. They will probably ultimately walk because everyone does, but it'll take them that much extra time. And let's not forget the other mental repercussions on that child where they're going to turn around and look for their mom before they can carry on taking a next step. And then you have the other parents, come on, walk. And, you know, they'll be crawling for months. <laughs> and then maybe you'll have your parent come and hold your hand up a little bit and then they'll just let go and you'll fall again. <laughs> and then you'll get, you know. <laughs> so you have to find that balance as a, as a parent. Um, and there's no, I mean, I don't know any university that teaches parenting. Uh, there's no degree for this. True, yeah. So you you have to learn from, from your own uh, mistakes as well. but you can take responsibility for the decisions that you you make based on what you've been through, which is something I always, I love to refer to Shefali Sabari and her conscious parenting concept, which is you can become a better parent by learning and introspecting as how you have grown up. And your, yes. your children will teach you that. 
as you choose to do one or the other thing with them. So yeah, if you want to have an awakened family, which is actually the name of her, her book, you have to really just call yourself out on stuff first and then decide to tell your child what to do or, or what not to do. I think, yeah, if that answers your question, yeah, everybody has to break and fall and rise again and mend and repair. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful answer. I really do. And I think obviously there's a lot of hesitation about not breaking your child. And then I'm not sure what you're seeing, but I see a softer generation coming up in some senses. You know, those who have, like we said, ease of access, everything is instant, nothing's very hard, obviously. And I think this is the rise of the mental health challenges, right? If you don't have, I'm going to paraphrase someone else just to clarify, this isn't my quote, but I think I heard Mark Manson speak about it. And he said that these are almost evolved problems, you know, like if we look at, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we understand all the hardships that we have to do and just get through survival at the very tip of that is what does my life mean? What am I going to do with this? And these existential questions are, you almost have to earn them. And I think because we rise to the very top so soon, and then there's the pressure exacerbated by what we're seeing around us and maybe what's expected of us and broken parenting and families and all this type of stuff, then that's why the mental health challenges are exacerbated so much. Absolutely. It's important exactly to recognize that you have to also see each child for who they are. They're a separate human being. You you can't parent even the same brother and sister in the same line because what worked for one isn't necessarily going to, you know, work for the other. So I recently was listening to a podcast where there's this Dr. Anna Lemke. She was talking about, you know, her, her book and she referred to her own children and she said, she said, I've got, I think she has three children and the first two She gave them devices and, you know, everything worked out okay. They were able to manage and sustain the pressure of having a phone. And and they seemed a bit like they had the head on their shoulders. Whereas the third child, I think it was a a daughter, I, I I may be wrong. She struggled and they had to remove the device from her because she was unable to manage what happens with an overexposure to to this you know thing that you have in your hand so if we make life too easy for them it's what you said you come to a point where you have to answer a very difficult question in your life and you have no idea what to say so and and on that, and on that note i think the biggest take back that we've taken from the pandemic is the children who have lived through that are going to be resilient children in the future and I obviously we have to wait and watch, but I honestly believe that those children, the who are now currently the teenagers who have been through 2020 onwards, are going to be very strong human beings because they are experiencing the biggest lifestyle change experiment in history <laughs> in their in their teens. For sure, you know. Uh, so yes, if you don't go through hard times, you cannot appreciate good times. I, I completely agree. And I think that I always say that if when I'm in the future, I have children, if I'm blessed enough to have them, that I would love all of them to do some form of sport because of, I think it's the only thing that has these hard and fast rules where you see a direct reflection of your efforts. And sometimes you lose unfairly and you have to take these hardships. There's physical hardship, there's working in a team. If it's a team sport, there's a lot of different variables that come into play that I think that we miss out on. So I think sport is the one thing that can keep people you know, on the straight and narrow from that sense with a bit of an antidote to potentially the 
easier world that they have? And this is a bit of a personal question because I'm intrigued about the idea of masculinity at the moment. And I'm really, really fascinated by this. How have you found bringing up a boy and essentially to allow him to become a man that's not toxic masculinity style, but also who's not feminine? Yeah. Or too feminine, let's say maybe. The first thing that I have to say is you you really need to observe each child very carefully from the minute they're born and as they're, they're growing. With my son, I knew very early on that he was he was very sensitive as as a as a person sensitive emotionally he continues to be but as the years progressed because of ex- his exposure and maybe the company that he found the friends he made i did see a toxic masculine side in him when he was about 14 15 and i detected that straight away how because we had a couple of unfortunate incidents in the family where some of us were grieving he was too, because this is just the, nat- the nature of life. You must grieve if you lose something. And he acted out on that because he was unable to manifest his emotions in an appropriate manner because he felt that it was the wrong thing to do as a guy. And this is a conversation that then I had with him and we addressed this and I explained to him that there is absolutely nothing wrong with crying or, or, or speak, saying that you're not feeling okay, that you're sad. These are just normal human emotions. And so that was just like a turning point for me to recognize. And I'm glad it happened. Of course, at the time, it was very difficult because I couldn't I didn't understand what was going on with him. And it was, pr- yeah. and it was because he had these layers on him, this expectation of him to be hard and strong and not explain himself the way that maybe it's absolutely acceptable for my daughter to. So again, big parenting lesson there for me. Nobody wishes their child or their son to not be sensitive or go in one or the other direction, but you have to work with them and work through it with them and navigate the options that they have and tell them this is what's there. You choose what you want, but it will be helpful for you to talk about it. That's the first point, the communication. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think that I can resonate with that a lot, actually, as well. I think I've always had this more sensitive side within me. I intentionally hardened up because of I thought that that was what needed to do. And I found that as life has progressed, there's probably still that hardening up nature that still exists. But I found that leaning, essentially, it becomes too much that it starts to seep out in other areas in unproductive ways. And I feel like I'm coming full circle now to integrate myself fully and acknowledge that I think as long as you don't allow these sides of you to be untamed and go completely off the rails, like if you are too sensitive, then you probably are going to have some issues in this world. But if you are too hard, you're also going to have some issues in this world. So I think, like you said, allowing him to understand that these are normal human emotions, your emotions aren't who you are. They're just a part of life that we experience can be super powerful for helping him uh, understand that they're there for him and just to live and breathe through them versus ignoring that they even exist. Yeah. And you know, something that I've observed, especially which comes very subconsciously with a lot of parents is they somehow feel that when their daughter or 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 the female in the picture is going through, you know, a hard time, they will kind of you know, umbrella over her and be like, okay, come here, let me, let's talk about this. And, and they'll, they'll make it a conscious effort to make that a conversation and, and help her, which is great. But if the boy has come back from, I don't know, say a tennis match, I'm giving examples here 
and he's like, oh, I lost and it, it was not great. You don't do the same with the with the boy. You won't tell him, okay, do you want to talk about it? Come on, let's have a conversation. But you may have to consider doing that because you have no idea what has gone through that child's head. Just because he's a boy and just because it's it's a game of sport, again, pointers to rem- remind ourselves that not everything is in, in categories and brackets. Each person is just a human being and, and everyone has their right to feel and emote as they wish. So yeah, those conversations need to be had both with the boy and the girl. I couldn't agree more. Goldie, this has been a truly phenomenal conversation. I've enjoyed every single second of it. And I wish we had longer. Maybe we'll do a part two. I think we'll absolutely do a part <laughs> two in the future. You. But no, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you both personally and professionally. And I feel there's going to be so much for those who are listening today to take away. So if anyone wants to know more about your work, where can they find you? I'm on Instagram, coach underscore Goldie. And then I'm also, I have a website, goldieutham.com through the website where you can check what I do, my work. And on Instagram, I'll, I'll reply to you if you write to me. Yeah, I'll put all those details in the show notes. And yeah, if you want to reach out to Goldie, you'll have all the ability to. So thank you so much for being here once again. And I'll speak to you very soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.